This evening's Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 18, which is page 75 in the Pew Bibles. Exodus 18, verse 1, Jethro visits Moses. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. One son was, called, was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and, your, and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. And if you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. 
Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Amen. I'm going to have to start writing bigger, I have to say. <laughs> it's not getting any easier. I was taking a class uh, during the week on preaching, and we were looking at different types of sermons that, that people preach. And for most sermons, it's important to, to leave people with something concrete that they can take away and, and apply fairly directly uh, in our lives. And that's, I think, what we like to do. But there's one type of, of sermon that doesn't directly have that specific nature to it. It's more about building an idea, building a vision, building a way of looking at things in general. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to, to try and, and cast a vision of how leadership is done. But it's not just leadership I'm thinking about, because Leadership is the context in which we have this here in Exodus 18, and I'm going to be looking back at 17 as well. Leadership is the context. I'll be talking about leadership, but in actual fact, as Sam reminded us this morning, we are called to be a kingdom of priests, and that, that priestly office says something about our role in the world, leading in the world, and again, we were talking about that um, after the sermon, uh, service this morning. So it'll be much more broadly uh, applicable, I think, than, than just to those who uh, are or see themselves as, as leaders. So shall we pray together then before I begin? Father, you've called us to worship you this evening. You've drawn us to this quiet place where everything else is shut outside these four walls. And we're here together with you in a special way. And in about half an hour's time, we'll get up and gradually we'll go out and we'll go back into the world again. And so we pray that as we have worshipped you with our praise this evening, so we might learn from you in our meditation and be empowered to worship you with our lives as we go back to the ordinariness of all that you have called us to do and all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, there's the question. Um, many of you will know that, that I, I like graphics, I like pictures. So I'm looking for a wee bit of help here. What picture do you think you might put up on that? Any, anybody, any suggestions? I'm tempted to break you into President Trump, Winston Churchill, sublime and... No, 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 no. Yeah, could which way around indeed. <laughs> yeah, you could, could be a, a great leader. That would work. Any others? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, a big, big, strong example of, of Christian living. Any others? What about, what about you, could, you could have somebody pointing like that and, say, and that sort of thing. Let's go. Arrows, direction. Here's a couple of images that I think catch for me what chapter 18 is saying here about leadership. That one. 
I realize that, uh, I'm sorry, they are, they are a bit small. And that one. What's going on in those pictures? Anybody? Teaching, you're being too subtle. Patriarch, teaching, family. What's the action that's going on that's happening in that? In that? Somebody's doing something. So I heard, did I hear telling? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Claim it anyway. Claim it anyway. <laughs> yes, in the left-hand picture, you have the old man telling a story to, to the young people. In the right-hand picture, you have the older lady telling a story to the younger people. And that, I think, is the key to understanding chapter 18. But not only chapter 18, but chapter 17 as well, and that puts 19 and 20 into context. And again, as Sam reminded us this morning, this, this crucial time in the life of Israel is set in its bigger context. So the picture of leadership that I want to, to suggest that springs out of this text is that we simply lead by telling a story. But of course, it's not just any story. It's a particular story. And if you look at the verses that are, are up there, you'll see if you glance down them, 1, 4, 8, 9, 10, and especially 11, what's going on in those verses? Before Jethro gives advice to Moses, we'll come to that in a minute, what's going on in these verses? What's Jethro doing really? And others, and if you go, if you go back into the, uh, the chapters before, you see the same thing time after time after time. And if you go forward from Exodus through the rest of the Old Testament, you see it time after time after time after time. The context for the giving of the commandments that we looked at this morning and the rest of the law that follows in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the context is what's being drawn out in those verses. Because in each of those verses, we're reminded again and again and again and again of what God has done. God has done this, therefore. God has done this, so we'll do that. God has done this, so this is how you must respond. And you see the same rhythm that those of us here, were here this morning noticed. It's grace first and then response. Grace from God and then response from God's people. And I suppose the very simple big idea from this evening is that Christian leaders simply keep on doing that. Christian leaders simply keep on saying it's all about the grace of God. Now let's see how we respond. This is how God has led us. Now let's see how we move on. So God's great story dominates the whole of Scripture. And God's great story actually dominates, I would suggest, the whole of history. And if we are to understand Christian leadership, in fact, if we are to understand what it is to be a Christian, I think this is where we start. Simply telling God's great story. So can I put up a, a, a graphic about that? The center of God's great story is Jesus, isn't it? I'm just offering five marks for where the picture comes from, if I'm right. 
<laughs> I hope it's the Sistine Chapel. Yep. And I chose that for a particular reason. Now, again, I recognize it's not straightforward to see, because this is a picture of the judgment. And the judgment, if you like, comes at the end of the story, chronologically. But if you can just see the detail, you probably have to come up to about here to see it, to be honest. But uh, trust me in this. Just down uh, about here, in Jesus' side, what would you expect to see? Sometimes it's more gory in, in pictures than those, but just, it's just a little nick here. And that's a reminder that the one who judges is the one who was crucified. And those two can never, ever be separated. For God took judgment upon Himself, and then He Himself overcame death, rose again, and will come. And that's God's great story. The Old Testament points forward to it. The New Testament tells the story and moves us on towards the consummation, towards the judgment and into eternity. And you see the little arrow? That little arrow is us. That little arrow is the people of God. That little arrow, if I had put it uh, over to the left in the Old Testament, would have been Moses and the elders and the people at that time. Just a little segment. And every, in every period of history, that little arrow moves on. But the little arrow is only really understood in the context of the big arrows of God's story. So quite rightly here, we see Jethro starting, telling the people, or sorry, reminding Moses perhaps, of all that God has done. Well, what happens next? Next in the story, a problem. Well, actually, not just one problem. Stacks of problems. And that's the problem. The problem is the problems. Because Jethro gets up. Moses has already gone to work. Jethro finishes his breakfast and goes out to see What's the young lad doing? I mean, he's only 80. <laughs> what's, what's he doing? And he sees Moses sitting, judging the people. And Jethro looks around and says, there's a problem here. Maybe he'd have said, Moses, there's a problem here, son. And what's the problem? Well, Moses is being the narrow conduit or, or pipe through which all of God's um, communication with His people is coming. The people are bringing all their problems to Him. He's doing His best to deal with them, telling them what God wants them to hear, and then sending them away. And not surprisingly, He's being beaten down by it. Could Jethro see him wilting under the pressure? Or did Jethro just have insight that it was going to happen sooner or later? Well, we haven't a clue. But Jethro put his finger on the problem. Now, the problem, I suppose, you can see it hinted at in 15 and 16. And it's in one little word, 
Perhaps one little one-letter word. It's the word I. Because the, the general flow of 15 and 16 is not bad, actually. And I'm going to, going to come to that just now. But it's all filtered through I, me, one person. And that's the problem. Okay, let, let, let's go back to um, uh, Joe Ordinary in uh, the tribe of Issachar has a problem with his neighbor. They can't solve it. So what do they do? They come to Moses. Well, Jethro says, Moses, hold on a minute. I want you to look at this in a certain way. And if you come down to verses 19 and 20, you'll see what Jethro says Moses should do. And not only Moses, of course, but all of the other elders. They're all to take this same approach to people who have, have problems. Do You see what they do in, in 19. They take the problem to God. It's very straightforward, isn't it? They, they, Moses and, and the others are to be the ones who stand between the people and God. And this is where my eyesight really is going. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, in 19, listen now to me until I give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be first the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Now, what's the process in that? What do you think actually went on? Joe Ordinary from Issachar comes to Moses, tells his problem to Moses. Moses says, Lord, you know Joe Issachar's problem. Joe, here's what you do. I can't see it as simply as that. Because of the repetition of you're the representative before God and you present before God, surely it's more than that. Surely it's Moses and the judges, of course, uh, in their time, taking this man's problem and not just saying, Lord, you know his problem. But the process of laying the problem out before God. Getting Joe to tell his story to God. And as Joe tells his story to God, there's an opening up of the problem. And if Joe and his neighbor and the others are there, well, then they're all putting their, their bits in. And they're all opening the problem before God. See what's happening? And then what happens? In the first part of 20, we're told what the response is. That they are then to tell the people what God says. The statutes, the laws, all that God says. Now, isn't there a certain ordinariness to this? But when you think about it, doesn't it just make such good sense? Lay the problem out before God and then listen to what God has said. And I wonder if, if this is where Moses actually does earn his corn. Because from the next chapter on and throughout and from the, the, the books following, there's an exposition of God's law. There's the spreading out before the people of what God says. And there are many, many rules, many, many regulations, all sorts of stuff. And we'll come back to that in a minute. What happens after that in verse 20? They listen to what God has said, 
and then they take action. Okay? And so Moses will talk with Joe from Issachar, bring to him God's Word, and they will sense what God wants him to do. And so that's pretty straightforward so far. Problem, take it to God, listen to God, take action. And life's always easy like that, isn't it? You know, you've got a problem, bring it to God, God speaks, you take action, happy days. But of course, it isn't as simple as that, is it? And there's no sense here in which it is as simple as that. Because we know as we read through Genesis and, uh, sorry, through, through Exodus uh, and through to, to Deuteronomy, it really isn't as simple because we've seen it up to this point. What happens? God does something for the people. He gets them out of their trouble, their problems solved. They move on. And then what happens? They get themselves into trouble again. They start to grumble again. They do this, they do that. And so, actually, it becomes rather circular. And for too, for too many of us, this, this is actually a short-term problem as well. We have an issue. We take it to God. We listen to what God is saying. We take action, and it all goes haywire. And the problem hasn't actually got any better. If anything, it's maybe got worse. This little snapshot says, don't panic. Don't panic. Because you're still caught up in the great narrative of God's story. God's story hasn't changed. God's story is moving on. Interesting hand movement, that, isn't it? God's story is moving on. Oh, let's see if we can get a picture of it. Yeah. God's story is moving on. Not in your life, perhaps, dead straight like that. But in your context, maybe it's going round and round. Maybe you can't quite yet discern how God is leading you on. But keep going. Keep this pattern in your life. Keep this pattern in your leadership. Because that's how God often moves with His people, because that's what we are. We keep getting ourselves into trouble. It just happens, doesn't it? And so God is keeping going around this circle. And as we're going around this circle, it's rather like riding a bike, isn't it? Your feet go round and round, but magically you move forward. So what Jethro says to Moses here is in your pattern of leadership, you've got a sense of what's going on, and you're right. But let's make a few changes to it. Don't take all the responsibility on yourself. Make sure that it's all about taking the problem to God, listening, acting, and then maybe repeating the cycle as, as a way of going. And of course, if we go throughout the Scripture, not only do we see that cycle, but we see another word that isn't really mentioned here, but is actually under, uh, undergirding so much of this throughout the rest of, of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And it's the word wisdom. Anything from God that is filtered through your mind or mine will always be, if I can put it reverently, in danger of being corrupted just a little bit. And if we're taking any form of leadership, whether it be in the congregation here, in the community outside, within our family, within our workplace, among our friends, anywhere, we will need the wisdom that God alone can give. 
We will need the wisdom that Moses needed, that the other leaders of Israel needed. We will need the wisdom. I wish I could flick back to that picture again, but I didn't think of it quickly enough. The wisdom that is centered in Jesus Christ, as Paul tells the Corinthians, that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We'll pick that up in in just, just a wee minute. There's a, a little story to be told. Kind of a quick show of hands, all right? I'm going to read out some names. As soon as you recognize any name, would you give me a, a quick wave? Okay. James Price. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Josephine McGaw. Okay. Uh, C.M. Young. Sounds like a cricketer, doesn't he? C.M. Young, but not a cricketer. Yep, a few more. What about uh, Lily Worth? Some more coming along. Uh, Lendrick McMaster. Jack Orr. Graham Connor. Elsie Boyd. Alistair Giffen. What do they all have in common? Yeah. They're part of us, aren't they? They're part of us. I didn't know. I'm sure I'd seen it before, but I didn't know until uh, after the service this morning that this lectern was presented in memory of Miss Josephine McGaw in 1942 a lifelong beloved worker among the children of Bloomfield Presbyterian Church. Josephine McGaugh is part of our great story. Sorry, part of our little story, which is part of God's great story. And all the other names that I mentioned, and many others who are coming to to many of your minds, I'm sure, who have served Christ in this place and have gone to be with Christ in perfection. You see, the story of God envelops our little story as His people here. And if that's true, then a number of things fall out in consequence of that, and they're still in the passage that that we're looking at. Let me just give you a few examples. Jethro says, son, I'm going to talk to you. Listen to my advice. And anyone in Christian leadership who chooses not to listen to advice is a fool. And can I say graciously, anyone who's younger in leadership and refuses to listen to to those who are older is a fool. Ah, let's go for broke as well. Anybody who's older in leadership and refuses to listen to those who are young is a fool. Because in the providence of God, there seems to be that, so am am I okay? There seems to be that, that dynamism where older people in a fellowship have a sense of eldership, been there, done that, experience, have walked with God, whereas younger people tend to have a sense of we can do great things, a sort of prophetic, let's go for it. And the church of Jesus Christ needs both of those. So Jethro says to Moses, you may be 80, but listen to advice. 
Now, of course, I'm not saying nobody would be daft enough to say all advice is good advice. You think, you think forward a lot of years, and you come to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, and he listened to two sets of advice, one from the older people and one from his mates, and he chose the wrong one. So just listening is not enough. And we're back here to this wisdom thing, aren't we? We take advice and we listen for God to speak to us before we take action. Not only listening to advice, but again, it's the same thing that, that, that Jethro is telling, telling Moses. Share the responsibility. The church is no place for lone rangers. Never has been, never will be. If you look at uh, the history of the church, generally um, bodies that have been founded around one person and where that one person has dominated and led, especially for, for a particularly long time, they tend to go awry. Either they hive off into being cults, think of the Mormons here, for example, or else when they, that, that leader dies, they split because he was the one who held them together not a corporate leadership. In the Reformed tradition, we go for corporate leadership. And that's the corporate leadership of the mums together who talk about just what it's like being a mum of small children. And the bowlers who talk together about what it's like to be in the prime of life <laughs> and sharing the responsibility together as well as, of course, in, in session committee and so on. We carry the burden together. And then, of course, I suppose it's rather obvious. Again, Jethro is saying this, accept help. Accept help when it comes along. Um, th there's a certain arrogance that strikes mm, some people. And... Uh, I suppose I would have to confess I, I, I see it in myself sometimes, which is why I'm aware of it. That arrogance that says, I know, you don't. I'll go my way. Just watch me. How foolish is that? Especially when you get two or three uh, steps down the road and you realize, oops, this is going nowhere. Ah, I thought I knew what I was doing, but the problem, ah, where am I getting to now? Where do you go at that point? What do you do? You start going around that circle again. You bring it to the wise people who know how to bring it before God with you. You say, Lord, let me lay this out. And those who are wise will help you lay it out before God. Those who are wise will help you find what God is saying through His Word. Those who are wise will help you work out how to respond to it and start moving on in the great cycle of God's story again. See, that story keeps coming back and back, and that cycle keeps moving on and on. Then the last thing... Um, in this particular section. It reaches actually back into 17. Now, if, if I had thought earlier, I would have asked you to read 17. Because in chapter 17, we're introduced to a couple of people. There are really three people I want to, to mention. 
a battle is raging. While Moses holds his hands up, Israel's winning. When Moses lets his hands drop, things start to go wrong. Okay? And the two people who hold Moses' hands up are Aaron and Hur. Interestingly, Aaron's a big player in this, and we know lots and lots about him, and his story goes on and on and on. Who's her? <laughs> sounds like a sort of Belfast question. Who's her? Um, he only gets a mention here. That's about it. He, he basically disappears after this. But he was one of the two who held Moses' hands up. Who's the other big player? The other big player in that chapter is here's where he's first introduced to us in chapter 17, and he keeps popping up from now on time and time and time again. It's Joshua, isn't it? So from chapter 17 on, Moses is preparing for the future. Moses knows he can do some stuff himself, but here's the first time perhaps where Moses has to say, ah, I can't lead these people into battle, but Joshua can. And this was at the start of Joshua's apprenticeship. Had he been going on for had it been going on for a while before this? Who knows? But certainly there's a marker here. The older man who looks down at the apprentice and says, This is how to do it, son. Let me show you. Because the time will come when the older man retires and the work has to go on. I get depressed sometimes when I look at the back pages of the Presbyterian Herald. Occasionally, occasionally, and for various reasons. But one of the reasons that makes me slightly depressed is when um, I see a picture of the ordination of elders in a certain congregation. And you look and you think, they haven't got long for this world. <laughs> no. Why wait until they're that age? before electing them as elders, are there no young people? Is there nobody, is there no building for the future? It's a truism, isn't it, to invest in our young people. And great leadership recognizes that the story of Lilyworth and C.M. Young and Jack Orr and Alistair Giffen carries on through us now and will carry on when we take our places with them. And our responsibility is to do what Moses did, call people to himself, train the, the, the leaders whom he's talking about in chapter 18, and the Joshua's who will take things on into the next generation. It's what Jesus did, isn't it? Yeah. It's what he did. He prepared those who would carry things on when he wasn't there. So, we lead by telling God's great story. It's a long story. Again, doesn't uh, Jethro say this to Moses? You'll wear yourself out. Leadership is for the long haul. Patterns of leadership that are livable, that you can work with, that aren't going to destroy you. Make sure you're doing that. Can I, again, just remind you, we're not just talking about elders, committee, leaders in the community. We're talking about parenting here. Parenting's for the long haul. Yeah, I was reminded of the, of the phrase just last night. Somebody said it on television. You're only as happy as your least happiest child. <laughs> A parent is only as happy as their least happiest child. It goes on for the long haul. 
all types of Christian leadership, all types of Christian witness. So he's saying to Moses, build patterns into your life that will last so you won't burn out. You're in it for the long haul. Actually, it's more than that. The very long haul. Because the long haul is that one. And the patterns of leadership in this fellowship together, in our families, in anything we do among our friends, our communities, Jethro's words are wise to us, aren't they? Jethro's words that have tucked within them a way of dealing with issues as they come up, spread them out before God, listen to God speaking, take action, see what happens, spread that out before God, listen to God, take action, see what happens, spread… yeah? And He's saying to Moses and He's saying to us, together, together, together. See our story in the context of the fantastic things that God has done for us, in the context of the great things He's going to do for us, but ultimately in the context of Jesus Christ who gave His life for us, who lived, died, rose, ascended, and one day will come in judgment. And in the light of that, we live. Let's pray together. Now, as we pray, we think of the responsibilities that God has given to us in the different aspects of our lives, responsibilities that we bear. Gracious God, we are stunned that You have chosen to build our little stories into Your great story. You tell Your great story even through us. Lord, we are amazed. And so we pray that we might see ourselves in Your light and give glory to You at all times, spreading our lives before You, listening to You, responding in faith. Hear us, our God, for we pray in Jesus' name. And so may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.